Hello and welcome to the Ask the Industry Podcast, episode 113. I'm comedian Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today, the alternative comedy boom. Arthur Smith is an alternative comedian, the mayor of Ballam, and writer who has been performing in the UK since the late 1970s. We talked about his relationship with the Edinburgh Fringe, what drives him, how he has built his career in several different areas including little spots on tv shows hosting his own radio 4 shows creating his own west end live shows and so much more i think you're going to get a lot out of this we don't just discuss his process but we discussed hints and tips from him about how to title shows that make them attention grabbing at the edinburgh festival the most saturated time of the year for all performance and so much more I feel like anyone who has an interest in the alternative comedy boom, who has an interest in comedy and the history of it, will love this episode. So I really hope you enjoy it. If you're new here, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button. If you're old here, please do remember to give us an honest, ideally positive review in iTunes. And either way, please do join the Facebook group. It's called RC Industry Podcast, and it's on Facebook, obviously. Before I hit play on the podcast, I just want to say that I have signed up for the Edinburgh Festival and I am currently previewing a show around the country. I won't go on about where and when that's going to be right now, but if you want to take a look in the show notes and have a look and see where I'm going to be previewing and where I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Festival, uh, that would be great. I really appreciate seeing some of your faces at the shows. It's always lovely to have the audience come down and say, hey, it's me, I'm the person who tweets you, or hi i'm a regular listener and i love it so if you could come down to a show that'd be really appreciated and or the edinburgh festival and if you're not able to come down if you could just pass on the message to a friend who's in the area that'd be massively massively appreciated and i can't thank you enough for the support but for now without any more delays this is arthur smith birth name is brian arthur john smith uh, so Brian is what I'm called by all those closest to me, uh, and but when it, in my day you had to join equity, to so you could work professionally, and they couldn't take two people with the same name. So when I applied to be Brian Smith, uh, there must already have been a Brian Smith, and uh, then I sent in saying, "Can I be Captain Wanker?" <laughs> and they wrote back and said no and I don't know presumably because there, already is, there already is but <laughs> so then I went for Arthur which frankly was probably a lot better than if I'd actually they'd accepted Captain Wanker it would have worn thin that joke <laughs> anyway also they wouldn't have been able to advertise me on anything in, if the word wanker <laughs> was out of order so anyway then I said Arthur Smith because actually I'd been known at school a bit as Arthur and uh, in the school magazine, I used to write the Arthur Corner, which was a sort of column about uh, God only knows what. Uh, so Arthur in a way, and of course Arthur, there are, as you will know, uh, at least three comedians you could name called Arthur. Mm. Go on then. Arthur Smith. <laughs> yeah, Does that count? Right. No, fair enough. Yeah, all right. I hadn't considered that, but yeah, all yeah. right. Arthur, oh God, hang on. They're a bit old school. They're old school. Yeah, I'm trying to think of names. Oh, now this has turned around. How did it start? <laughs> Arthur, 
Oh, Jesus. There's someone. Not Arthur Jesus. All Arthur, right. Have you not met uh, Arthur Jesus? He's very funny. <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't count. He's never even got an equity card. No. Right, I'll no, give you one. No. Arthur Askey. Arthur Askey. That's a good one. Arthur Mallard. Arthur Mallard. Arthur. Oh, God. There's another one. I mean, he's I all before it. your time. Arthur English. I don't know Arthur English. Yeah, he was. Uh, We're going to pretend to know who that is. No. And of course, playwrights. Arthur Miller. But this is the thing. I think there's. A, I think Schopenhauer's called Arthur, isn't he? The philosopher. Anyway, I think we've done enough on Arthur's. Yeah, probably. well, I, it's because a lot of people change their name because they had a day job or trying to avoid people Googling them nowadays. Or but if I they assume, just wanted a sillier name. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I wondered if you'd done that. I mean, obviously, Google wasn't a thing when you first no, started. No, 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 no. That never crossed my mind. I, you know, I didn't really care what my name was, to be honest. And considered, I, but I mean, looking back on it, Arthur is kind of a better name it's also rather groovy again now Arthur but you know there's lots of little Arthurs wandering around I come across right so you, you've never thought about going back to your original name or anything no like well that? I presume I couldn't and, well yeah and still be a member of equity yeah but I mean I never I often wonder who the Brian Smith was or is <laughs> you were you out there Brian somewhere in a parallel universe also Brian <laughs> is a bit of an embarrassing name in a way why well, see, when I, well, it, it's a bit wet, isn't it, Brian? It's like Life of Brian or something. It's like you pick the sort of most pathetic name you can. They did in that. Uh, and well, also, when I was a kid, it was Brian the Snail in the Magic Roundabout was really the yeah. only uh, role model I had. <laughs> <laughs> For a Brian. Yeah, there aren't many famous Brian. Oh, no, Brian Blessed. He's cool. Yeah. Oh yeah, Brian Blessed is the most ludicrous creature you could ever meet. And oh, I'd he's love to marvellous. I think he's amazing. Yeah. He never stays on topic. That's the best bit about him. Um, I mean, we're not, but that's, you know, entertainment factor. But I've been told off stage he's pretty much the same. Yeah, oh yeah, I've met him a couple of times. Yeah, he's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. And I mean, so we were talking a minute ago about uh, playwrights and, and obviously you've written plays and you've written comedy shows. And when I Google you, most of the things that come up label you as an alternative comedian. Yes. How do you feel about that as a label? Well, I don't mind. I mean, the whole subject of alternative comedy, uh, you know, it's quite complex. I mean, there are some who say, well, there never was such a thing. But there clearly, there clearly was a kind of small movement that took in various things and was very... What it principally was, was in sort of opposition to the stuff that was everyone knew about it was on the telly and the, the working men's clubs comedians and uh, uh, because these were guys mostly in suits telling jokes kind of formal constructs uh, which could be shared amongst any of them in a way uh, they mostly of course this is the time when Thatcher had just come to power when I started doing stand up so what, they, year, what year is that? Sorry. Uh, well, it's my third, my first ever stand gig in eighty or eighty one, I think. Okay. And um, uh, we were very the opposite of all that. They were Thatcherites, for example. Mm. You know, they wore suits and they made racist jokes and nearly all men. Mind you, it was a bit similar on the alternative comedy. There weren't a huge number of women, although there were. Anyway. Whereas we, you know, it was pointedly non-sexist. It was against the Tories. It was a bit, you know, political. It, uh, it encouraged ludicrous acts that you couldn't possibly really <laughs> think up. Uh, 
it encouraged it was a more modern thing and it was directly in opposition to the 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 regular stand-ups to sort of bernard mannings and the, all that lot um so and then with when the young ones came out that was a kind of that was the first tv thing of that kind of idea and then the clubs were getting bigger and there were more clubs opening and it took on a a kind of momentum of its own and so yeah no, i'm pleased to be associated with it in a way because i think it was good that it it stopped the the race or at least you know it made it unacceptable to go along doing some of the material that was going on uh, so it had a kind of it had a sort of political dimension that mostly I approve of. You know, it was against racism and against war, and uh, it, uh, and that was the ethos there. I remember when the Falklands was happening. That was an interesting time in Britain when the Battle of the Falklands, because there were a lot of people. That, they, you know, there'd be Brexiteers now who got very very worked up. And like we are British, and we're you know the army and the navy, and and it was quite it was almost unacceptable to be against it. Say, so what was the point of this? And and the comedy store was one of the few places where you could hear that kind of opinion without you know getting into a huge shouting match or a fight. That's really so. So was it a case of the comedians were leading? Because it sounds like all of the clubs were obviously chasing. Uh, or, or moving towards that boom of rock and roll being so comedy being new rock and yeah. roll. So as they were trying to chase bigger and bigger venues to do big, bigger and better shows, they'd obviously have to move with whatever the tastes were. Yeah. And so if you started, so say you performed something that was not sexist, not racist, or whatever, and yeah. it didn't get any laughs, would you just find a club where that worked, or how how would that work <laughs> for you? Because I'm assuming there were still clubs out there that were like working men's clubs, maybe that would still like factory yeah. type comedy yeah oh yeah uh well what was the question <laughs> so, so were there any places that you couldn't play and how was it trying to find gigs that would it well enjoy they're, your they're in, it, it was mostly all in london at this point there weren't many out of london and they all shared a kind you know there was a vegetarian restaurant that used to put on shows and then jonglers opened and that was more open to as the name suggested to sort of you know higher wire acts and jugglers and things but all of them had a kind of you know there was an agreement you wouldn't do <coughs> sexist racist homophobic uh, material uh, and it's like people signed up for that i mean a lot of it i think was decided by the tony allen who a lot of people i mean he's not famous or anything but he was quite a shaper of the the political times then, I remember. Someone called him Lofty Tone, I remember. <laughs> it was quite a dude, old Tony. So now when someone gets labelled as an alternative comedian, I feel like that, that title means something different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure cause what it would mean these days. Is because there are, back when I started, there, there were relatively few of us alternative comedians. You know, mm. there was... You know, I don't know, 20 or 30 for mm. a bit, that's all. Whereas, of course, now there are hundreds and hundreds, possibly thousands of comedians and aspiring comedians and open mic spots, etc., etc. And I think, you know, and good for that. But I think within those thousands, you've got pretty much everything. I mean, I continue to see ludicrous acts and quite hectoring left-wing acts. And, but on the other hand, you also get more, you know, there's a whole range of other things that wouldn't have been there then. In fact, you know, the rise of the right-wing comic a bit or the, 
you know, the, the kind of neat shirt and tie uh, comedian, the Jimmy Carr, who, you know, I mean, I suppose he's good at what he does, but he, you know, there's no soul in him. I mean, that was part of the thing about comedy then. If people began to get a bit confessional talk about themselves, and it wasn't jokes, it was observation and, and, um, and imagining different things. So, yeah, well, I'm generally quite pleased to be one of the alternative comedians. It doesn't stress me particularly. I mean, you know, you always get a bit defined by your era. Mm. And, and, yeah, I mean, there's, there's certain looks that you associate with certain types of comedians. And, and I suppose, do, do you have a, a thing you wear or like a, a uniform that you put on when you yeah, go on stage? Yeah, that's a good question because specifically back then with alternative, I kind of made the point, I'm not going to, why do you have to put a bloody suit on? So I'd never, ever wear a suit. Uh, and why do you have to dress up at all? So, I mean, I remember a couple of times going, I'm really just a bit like I am now in tracksuit bottoms and a string vest kind of thing. That was another small rebellion. But then the suits and ties have come back now, I suppose, and dressing smartly. In fact, you don't really see scruffy comedians, do you? I mean, these days, it depending on what the gig is. If I'm playing, you know, a theatre in Guildford, I'll wear a nice shirt and jacket and trousers actually that is basically I that is basically my kit a jacket trousers shirt although i used to do and still do occasionally if you're emceeing i always thought well that's an opportunity to come on between an axe in a ludicrous outfit for no reason so i've got a few of those going back over the years so i just come on you know i've already been on three or four times because i was emceeing and then I'd come on in a sort of nylon one piece dressed as a daisy or something and you'd easy laugh. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> definitely <laughs> worth trying. Um, I, I mean, you're only on for 30 seconds before you bring on the next act anyway, so even if they don't Well, like no, it. but, but well, probably longer than that. You know, I mean, when I used to MC, you'd do longer between. It depends who the MC is, what the gig is, you know, sometimes, yeah. uh, you know. If it's a variety show, you might have more setup or something like that. Or more yeah, and if you're, you know, if you're Patrick Monaghan, you'll do 45 <laughs> minutes anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I was going to ask, so, so when you first started as a, as a comedian, you'd obviously been uh, a street performer for a bit before that. Yeah, well, I'd been in, in reviews. At the, I'd been, I went to the Edinburgh Festival in 77 with my university review, mm. which was pretty much what comedy was at the fringe then mm. there weren't any stand-ups uh so yeah i'd been performing and i was in a band for a couple of years as well yeah uh but so i was used to performing although i hadn't you know i hadn't been making a living out of it i had other jobs I had day jobs obviously but um but when the stand-up thing started i you know i went I went for that, and I and I was in a double act for a bit, and we did a TV series, and but eventually, really stand up. I recognised, I recognised the stand up in myself, shall we say? Mm. I was well. I was going to ask how long you had a day job for before you went. Yeah, time. I I I was teaching English to foreign students in North London, uh, and I think I must have stopped around nine. But when I about when I was thirty. Um, and in fact, well, already I was beginning to appear on the television then. I remember once giving my class the homework of they've got to go and watch me on TV tonight and I'll give them a quiz about it next day. <laughs> Just to get the numbers up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
yeah, I remember distinctly when I was beginning to earn some money, and we, and we, I'd been, you know, but it was exhausting, and I'm sure all young comedians is still the same, doing a day job and then doing gigs at night. And I remember one night, I, this is when I was still in the review because I did that as well. But we went and did a show, and then we were coming out, and there was a review in the Guardian the next day, and I thought, well, if I'm reviewed in the Guardian. Perhaps it's time to give up everything except showbiz, and I sort of did. That's when it, you know. So you just quit your job and went straight to stand up. Yeah, pretty much. Because I mean, I was earning a bit of a living from the stand up net by now, and mm. uh, yeah, and yeah, being on telly a bit. So yeah, I could afford to finally. And mm. then that was the end of Monday mornings. Because I've never been one who likes getting up early, and I distrust really comedians who like getting up early. I mean, if you're a comedian, you're meant to be up in the early afternoon if you're young. I remember Joe Brandstad like when Breakfast Television started. He said, "I've been watching Breakfast Television for years. It's called Pebble Bill at One." It's <laughs> <laughs> an old joke. Um, uh, sorry, I, I was I was going to ask a question about how long you'd been it sounds like you got full-time or at least you went full-time fairly early after yeah. leaving uni how long after that did you how long did it take you to feel like you were a comedian like how long did it take you to actually go you know i've written a bit here that is something that you know what i mean like yeah well i think it was when i well i remember an incident because i was also you know trying to get stuff on the radio and there was a program then it's now the equivalent now would probably be news jack there was essentially the news. It was the 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 HUD news headlines, and it had Roy Hud in it, and they were open to anyone who wanted to submit material. And I distinctly remember one day uh, standing in a car park in Wimbledon, listening to the radio, and at the end it said, "And the writers include," and there was about twenty-five names, and one of them was Brian Smith, as I was then. And that, I, I frankly, if I won the Nobel Prize tomorrow, I wouldn't be more pleased than I was by that moment. And I thought, oh, I've been paid for writing a joke. So that felt a thing. And I suppose with performance, uh, yeah, it, that, uh, there wasn't a sort of specific moment. Well, I do remember when I started emceeing at the, the Hemingford Arms in Islington, and that became a little funny little gig. And the very first time I emceed coming on and I started talking and the mic wasn't working and someone said, why don't you switch it on? <laughs> and I said, oh yeah, and that was, my, that was the start of my emceeing career. Although in the end I got laughs out of my in, inability to turn the microphone on. I always think failure's better than winning in stand-up. Yeah, failure generally is more interesting yeah. than winning. I mean, who wants to read about someone who's won everything, having a great time? Fuck off. You want to see about the people who've had more complex times and are doing worse than you. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, I mean, in stand-up, it's, it's the, you know, you, divert, you adopt a kind of status. Mm. So you, could, you can come on sort of very feeble and nervous type play or very mm. quiet or... Or, and, and not really sure if you know what you're talking about. I don't know, John Cairns or someone. Or, you know, it, it, there's a, or you can come on saying, hey, everybody, I'm here and I know everything. You know, you can play high status. And, you know, both are good, but you should play the one that's most appropriate 
to who you are on stage, mm. which in a way it takes a long time to find out your stage self in a way. Yeah, that, that's why I was asking, because a lot of people I think get to go, like whatever they define it, get to go full time as a performer in some capacity, yeah. long before they later on in hindsight feel like they were good at it or that they yeah. knew what they were doing with it. And I think everyone, I don't think anyone ever really knows what they're doing with this, but I feel like you sort of have a better grasp on it when you feel like you could write a joke for your stage self in a situation about, you know, when you have an idea for a joke. Yeah. So that's why I was wondering how long it took you to feel like you had a bit of a grip on who you were on stage. Uh, well, as a stand-up, it probably, but bear in mind, I'd already done three or four years, you know, in this review thing. Well, I was on stage by myself occasionally, but it wasn't the same as stand-up really. But So I really had a bit of confidence from that. It probably, three or four years, really, uh, to where I kind of felt comfortable going on. Mm. And I'm pleased to say I don't really feel nervous anymore before I go on which I'm sure there's lots of people who do, and I feel a bit... Apparently John Gilgood used to vomit all the time before he went on. Is that right? If it isn't, don't sue me. I see, yeah, I mean, I, I see people getting nervous before. I, I don't think it's nerves, I think it's adrenaline. I think yeah. you're, 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 you're in that flight or fight. And I, think yeah, if you I were, mean, I don't want to be chatting with lots of people just before I go on. Oh, you, no, no. You want to kind of focus. Yeah. yeah, and you want to be like, I want to hit that line, the first line particularly well. Yeah. So it happens. I, I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in my, in my knowledge of you and my research of you, the two things that have kind of molded your career and, and, and pushed you forward is uh, the alternative boom and the Edinburgh Festival. Yes. Would that be fair? That's fair to say. I have measured out my life in Edinburgh Festivals. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I... Because uh, when did you first go up? When was... 1977, and I the was review. in the uh, University of East Anglia Review Company. We were doing a show called Swing Along a Dante, and... Uh, hang on a moment. I'm going to... Right, I want, I'm just going to read a poem. Go on, then. There, I've read the poem. Did you enjoy it? Well, you didn't hear it. I was just reading it to myself. <laughs> yes, so I started, I've really done this just so I can sneak out and have a fag while we're having this interview. I'll be honest. All right. Do you want me to move the mic nearer the door? Or? <laughs> yeah, go on then. Go on, how are we going to do Because I'm not really allowed to have a fag indoors. Are you not? Okay. Oh, hang on. Yes, well, I'll carry on talking. Yes, I was went out with the show in 1977. Uh, and we got, you know, we, we it was a two-hour show, as things were then, more likely. It was like, you know, you had an interval and everything. It was in a little primary school uh, somewhere in Edinburgh. And on the opening night, we had an audience of three, classically, who was my brother and his wife and another friend. But we went out, we did all the postering and the, everything. You, you know, we spent the whole day chasing people and... And eventually, on the last night, we sold out, and it was very exhausting, and but kind of satisfying. But I also thought at the end of that, oh, I don't know if I can be asked to do this. I'm not going to make any money out of this, am I? So for a while, I kind of gave you up, and then, but then we went back, and then stand up came, and I mean, I am a natural performer in a sense. If it, if there's a group of ten people, and someone says, oh, we need someone to make a speech, that I'll just put my hand up and do it. I mean, I may not do the washing up or the, you know, other things, but I'm always prepared to make a speech. 
<laughs> I'm big on funerals and uh, weddings. <laughs> Sometimes I think I should farm myself out. Yeah, become a priest or something. That would. <laughs> no, know. no, just get people to pay me to speak at the funeral. Fair enough. I mean, that's the, the comedy industry isn't what wants what it was. So I suppose if you <laughs> if you're gonna make some money on the side, I I was gonna ask about. So you just said the shows were two hours long when you first went. Yeah, the very first one was. Yeah, back in those days, you know, there wasn't. There were only about 60 comedy shows and they were nearly all university reviews. That were two they, hours long? Well, they, they certainly didn't always... You didn't quite have the sort of rigour of right there and hour as they all are now, hmm. which is probably better, to be honest, with so many shows on. We'd have been better off doing an hour, but we didn't realise it at the time. And in the end, we even made a tiny bit of money. So it was, it was... You know, it was enough to go back, and then eventually we got a radio series just around the time I was doing, you know, beginning the stand-up. So, you know, I, there, I did a lot of different things, and like I say, I was in a band, so, you know, and we did quite a few gigs around town. So I was always a performer, yeah. and I kind of think I always will be, unless I can't stand up or speak. Well, the the... The thing that I find interesting is a lot of people who started or went to the Edinburgh Festival in, say, the 1980s and 70s and, and a bit in the 90s were saying that uh, it was changing every year to become more commercialised and become yeah. more uh, unrealistic to make money. money. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And, yes. and so I wondered whether that changed the reason you continued to go, whether it was originally just because it was part of the university module and so you were like, I have to go, or... Well, it was partly that if you've got a, 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 what I aim to do, or you know, I have aims and sometimes succeeded, is to do a new project every year. Mm. And just for me, I mean, you don't have to do it there, but for me, doing it at the Edinburgh Festival is the done thing, and that's what I like to do because, and also, I love the city, and you know, it's a great chance to meet everyone in the world. Uh, and anyway, it's too hot in Spain in August and too boring in London. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but, you know, of all the projects I've ever done, nearly all of them started their life at the Edinburgh Fringe. It's not, and there's, there's all the other shows. There's the, you know, the gala shows, the charity gigs, the the ones where you suddenly come on in someone's play, the the one-offs, the late-night one at the Gilded Balloon. Uh, you know, yeah. there's... It's a great, you know, stage time is always good to keep, yeah. keep you mentally alert. Well, that, that's what I find interesting, is you saying that all your projects started in Edinburgh. I think a lot of comedians work all year to yes, do Edinburgh. That's right. I think it's changed a bit now. I mean, I see people doing previews for their Edinburgh show in kind of, you know, February and whatnot. Mm. Whereas, I mean, I'm old school. I'm, you know, in some ways, it's you writing it on the train on the way up. <laughs> and, I mean, uh, you've, got, you've got an agent, or you've got several agents, in fact. Yeah. Um, and for live work, in particular, you have an agent. I'm wondering whether, because, uh, have you been with them for a while? Or are they... Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering if they're used to that pattern. Because at the moment, I feel like the way the industry's set up, especially for, for people who want to kind of move from maybe the live circuit to, to TV, you know, you work your year, you go to Edinburgh of an idea, you bring in all the producers and the reviewers and all that sort of stuff, and then they either pick you up or they see you for a yeah. writing job or they try and transfer it into some sort of uh, TV series or sitcom or take your care, all that sort of thing, right? And I'm wondering, 
like whether you've ever gone up with a plan like that or whether you go up with just an idea no i i i've never really done that i'm not i'm not i'm not kind of a businessman in a way i mean i'm a, i do think well will will an audience like this obviously but uh no i, I don't I'm, and i've never had an agent quite like that to be honest i didn't wouldn't really want one i mean i remember when addison cresswell wanted to sign me up when he was starting um uh, off, off the curb, off the curb, yeah, and and I and it, I could see that he probably would. I mean, he made a lot of people successful, you know, but he was very quite kind of controlling, and you had it's like having a manager more than an agent. I've always preferred to sort of drift around and see what happens in a way, and I mean, and occasionally something, you know, you suddenly something's unexpectedly a huge success although equally the thing you thought was really good no one's bothered about <laughs> i mean that's how it was you know because i wrote a play i wrote a couple of plays and then the second one ended up really successful the evening with gary lineker which you know went into the west end yeah. and then for a couple of years and toured around the country and there was a film of it and blah blah so and that was just a sort of idea I'd had. It never occurred to me that that would happen. Well, that was rather nice when it did. Mm. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always curious. So how is your year as a performer structured then? Well, other than Edinburgh, really, <coughs> I don't... It, there isn't... A, that's why partly why Edinburgh's good. That is a sort of milestone that I'm liable... Even if I'm not doing a show, I'm probably going to be up there doing other stuff. Uh, that's the only real milestone on my yearly mile but um well you know i'm i'm quite haphazard you know i'm I, anytime i like that. I, sometimes i've done little tours of stand-up and there are some things that i end up doing regularly i'm currently being the voiceover on a program called money for nothing on the afternoons on bbc about a woman who repurposes stuff from the skip into sort of ludicrous armchairs uh, <laughs> and so you know that I've been doing that for a couple of years and then you know I, I, I'm a bit haphazard I don't have a big plan no. and I never really have no but I, I feel mean, like there are people I know who you know wrote down by 30 I'll have a million pounds be married with two children living you know you know there are people who really write but I've never been like that I'm a bit haphazard life is too unpredictable Mm. I feel like you can write down anything. Like, yeah. Go ahead, write. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have fun. Write with it that. down, but don't expect. I mean, there are some people who are, are very like that. I mean, I'm kind of a bit wayward in a sense. In a sense, I'm an alternative comedian because I've always been a little bit, I think, slightly on the edge of things sometimes, mm. rather than sort of bang in the middle. Yeah, and I suppose being like that also means you're not particularly trying to follow trends or trying to like. No. fit in with what an industry might want yeah i mean i'm alert to what's going on in the world sort of but yeah i don't i don't tailor what i do really with regard to the industry as uh, mm. as we're calling it yeah i mean you you've done quite well out of it. i mean you've had you've had quite a lot of awards from edinburgh and uh, in particular the lifetime achievement um and i just wonder what your take on awards is and whether they've actually improved your career or helped bring in more audience well an evening with gary lineker as i was which i mentioned just mentioned was nominated for an olivier award in mm. the early 90s and i got quite excited by that and 
I went to the ceremony and everything, and I've, and I, the ceremony was quite boring. And then the award was, was won by some other show. It only ever been on once or something and didn't really have much funny in it. It was for the best comedy. And I thought, well, they shouldn't have won that. Bloody award ceremonies. And really since then, the only times I've ever been asked to go to an award ceremony is if I was like getting paid to present it or something, which I haven't done for a while either. So I really, <laughs> award ceremonies, I just find them ludicrous really in a way. And... You know, I, so I don't, I make no, you know, I don't have my awards framed in gold on things. I, uh, I'm not really bothered about awards. I, I, I don't know, I want to say a joke I do. I, I'm an award-winning comedian, although unfortunately the award was for swimming. <laughs> I, I also, I watch awards and I say, it's so boring, you have to sit there and, and you know, wait and then there's endless things, and you're only really interested in your one anyway. Well, I am. I say that I'm not one who likes putting on a dinner jacket and mincing around Grosvenor House or something. I'd rather be, you know, walking down the road <laughs> outside it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but I wonder if because a lot of people there's a lot of uh, misconceptions about awards and what they actually provide you as a performer in terms of prestige and in terms of uh, opportunities. And I wondered if any had improved your career or offered you anything I, I really don't think so and I know I mean I interview a lot of comedians on the comedy club on Radio 4 Extra and I mean and you always get the little PR bit of blurb and it's always in fact you're not it's no good if you're just an award winning comedian that's hopeless you have to be a multi award winning comedian <laughs> or frankly you're a bit of a wanky if you've only ever won one yeah, on, I on mean a, I don't really pay any I suppose if they won the award someone must have thought they were good so you know fair enough but I don't take them seriously. Well, on a long enough timeline, everyone's an award-winning comedian and mm. everyone gets a five-star. So yeah. I think if you just hang around long enough and you find yeah. a reviewer that likes you... It's cliches. You know, in a sense, what comedy should do is, you know, smash cliches and the PR cliches, you know... So uh, after last year's sell-out show, you never had a show that wasn't a sell-out in mm. Edinburgh, uh, which makes you wonder why they're trying so hard to get you in now. But anyway... You know, after last year's five-star sell-out show, multi-award winning, you know... It's just... now more available than they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's still trying to get a gig, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do, see, and actually, funny enough, before we go to awards, for about 15, 20 years, I used to compare the Hackney Empire New Awards mm. And some others too, but I did that one, which became the uh, the uh, what's it awards anyway. New new comedian of the year, something. Yeah, anyway, it was quite a prestigious one, and had a lot of heats, and and um, and you know, seeing the winners of that, I mean, some of them obviously, you know, I could name them, you'd know them all now, but there's about half of them or a third of them you've never really heard of since. And quite often the one who came third is now, you know, I mean, Russell Brand was in it, one. I mean, all sorts, Eddie Izzard and more or less every comedian you could think of was in that at one time, and most of them didn't win. So it's quite clear that winning an award doesn't really amount to much. No, no. And, and you were talking about your Radio 4 show there, and I just wondered, because uh, I got told that you got it after the Gary Lineker play, like they got a sort of sprung board due to that. Oh, hello, this Hang is uh, my wife coming in. Hello, darling, this is Simon. No, that's all right, fair enough. 
Uh, it is recording, but I can pause it if you want to. Pause it. Yeah, if you want to pause on. it, I'll stop it there. But yeah, Gary Delaney, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I don't. I, I so I don't do that. But I, um, yeah. No, the first show was called Buddhism and Cats. Second show was called uh, Laughter is the Best Placebo, which is kind of the closest I've come to a joke at that point, as in on, on, as in, in the title. <laughs> yeah, not in, in, no, not no, in but they're interesting titles. They're um, better than, you know, uh, caning it. Or <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, I always find titling shows the hard, like a really hard part to do. Yeah, I agree. And, right. and you never quite know. Funny enough, with an evening with Gary Linick, we had no title for it, but the producer said that. And initially, we looked like you know we could have been sued by Gary Lineker for yeah, suggesting sure. that he was coming to do a show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had an I've got an idea for a show that I still don't know what to do with uh, because I, I like I said I love murders and conspiracy all that sort of stuff. So I want to do one called uh, Simon Kane knows who shot JFK and do it. Oh yeah, like as a, as a conspiracy theorist who thinks he knows. Oh yeah, the do truth. you know Carrie Marks? I knew know Carrie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is he into his conspiracy theory? She no, that's Carrie Marks. Oh, Carrie Marks. Marks. Sorry, Carrie, I don't know Carrie. His then. ex-wife. Oh, I didn't know. She that. did a show called Bad, which is sort of all about conspiracy. Is Carrie's so it's Carrie the male's wife's name Carrie as well. Carrie. I know it is confused. Carrie and Carrie. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So no, I don't know her. No. Anyway, but she did a show called Bad, and has got she's quite big on conspiracy theory stuff, and inventing her own. Yeah, I find them. Are we on? Are we recording? Oh yeah, sorry, I hit record. Sorry, no, 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 I don't mind. Oh, no, no, no. The mic. I thought, oh, we've started. We don't have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That no, 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 it's fine. I just yeah. want to ask about you a bit. That's right. Yeah, no. Uh, I'll edit me out. <laughs> <laughs> she did. Uh, she did a conspiracy show and has a, another one possibly on the thing. Yeah, I'm quite fascinated. They seem to be much more prevalent than they used to be. And I wonder, presumably, is there a sort of conspiracy theory conference, you know, where you go and there's a table there with, uh, you know, Kennedy and you've got lizards Kennedy here won't be there. If Kennedy was there, that'd be a fucking Well, not great. Kennedy, but, you know, the Kennedy conspiracy, the 9-11ers, the flat earthers, you know, do they, are they all mates or do they hate each other? If there is, I want to go to it. Yeah, <laughs> me amazing. too, yeah. No, I don't. I don't think there is. I don't. I. I don't think that it's as segmented as that. If I'm honest, like from my limited internet, like I think the reason it's more prevalent is because there's more of it, like more accessibility to it than on the internet. Like yeah. before the internet, I can imagine you would have had to go and meet with someone. Yeah. And then like it's really because do- like imagine like I you know I've come around just to hang out and I have to somehow say because I don't know if you're into it or not so I have to somehow go yeah. So JFK yeah yeah you know and yeah, like yeah. see but whereas if you're on the internet well I, I, I'm it. reminded of. One of the, the most strange dates I ever had. Oh, God, okay. Years ago, I, I'd met this woman briefly at a party, and, you know, I quite fancy her, and she was up for it. So <laughs> she rang, so we agreed to meet round at her place in Brixton, and uh, I got there, and she was there, and as was another man who was clearly completely in love with her. And she treated like really shit. Yeah. And he just sort of sat there like a lap dog and we chatted. And and I thought, well, you know. And then I said, oh, should we put some music on? And she put on her answer phone messages. That was a bit strange. And anyway, I thought, well, this is silly. So I sort of made it as I was going to leave. At which point she dismissed the lap dog man. Uh, and then so we're chatting and she told me that she'd been abducted by aliens and taken <laughs> right. into space where she'd had sex with a lot of aliens. <laughs> and it's quite hard to know what to say to someone when they say that, when they clearly really mean it. Why, 
Okay, well, I mean, we, I, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but I, I, I think there's probably such a thing as another life form, but I don't know if I believe necessarily they're picking people up and, you know, abducting them and yeah. You know, well, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm open to the idea that we're not alone in the universe. Blimey, it's a big place. Yeah, but yeah, 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 no, I don't think they're sending in people to pick up. People yeah. to take them off to have sex with them, really. Yeah, I mean, if you are listening to this... Certainly thing, it's never happened to me. Yeah, if you are an alien and you are listening to this, we've got enough people and performers... They wouldn't fancy me anyway, I we don't do. think. <laughs> Mind you, of course, aliens, it's true. Who knows what they fancy? Could be into anything, man. They might be after your wisdom. Like They might look at you and go, oh, he knows a lot. Yeah, but they must know a fair bit if they manage to get to Earth. I mean, we've never got to the round of their place, have we? Not yet, no. I mean, <laughs> Elon Musk recently said his cut right to have a little look. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty... How do you how do you title shows, then? Like, what's your... Do you have, like, Well, a, um... Because if you... Sorry, I was going to... I'm interrupting yeah. you, but you said that you start the idea for Edinburgh when you're in Edinburgh, so I presume when you have to register the show, you, yeah. you have even less of an idea than most... Quite often. That's quite often the case, though. I don't, well, I sometimes know what kind of show it's going to be, so... I did a show uh, in the 80s, I think, which I called uh, Arthur Smith Sings Andy Williams. And I called it that with having no idea what the actual show was going to be. Uh, and But then the show, in fact, in the end, I did sing a little bit of Andy. It's a long story. But the show was successful. And, and then I conceived I'd do some more Arthur Smith Sings. So then... Because it sounds like, and then I did Arthur Smith sings Leonard Cohen, uh, which I thought promised the grimmest evening of entertainment imaginable. You know, it was a kind of anti-title. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, I did end up singing some Leonard Cohen songs, which I've always loved anyway, and it sort of became something different. But yeah, I agree. I, I, I'm not very good at titles. And it's because it's difficult. It's hard to know what are successful titles anyway. I mean, you could have a great title and a shit show, or the other way round. It's difficult to discern what is a successful title. I suppose something that grabs you and tells you roughly what it is. But you know, that's a wide bracket. Yeah, I mean, I I try and make it as eye catching as possible. But I feel like you know, the problem is when you sit down and like think, oh, that's a great title. And then you look in the Edinburgh programme, you go, oh, so many yeah. shows, it's not going to... Well, uh, my last show was about my father, which I did in Edinburgh, and it's called Sid, which was his name, S-Y-D, and that's just what it's called. So, I mean, I don't know if that's a good title or not, because it's like, hey, what, who's, what's this? I mean, mm. and it's not particularly memorable in as far as it's... Except it's a name, it's got a Y in it, it's three letters. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know about titles, I agree. Do you, do you think, so when people are looking you up or, or know you from places, do you think people are coming because they've seen you before, because they've heard you on Radio 4? What, what, where is your audience being picked up from? Yeah, well, I, I think Radio 4, for example, definitely. And I do a joke where I say, at the beginning I say, you might know me from, and when I was on Grumpy Old Men, that, that got uh, quite a lot of attention. So I do a joke about that. And then I say, does anyone, maybe some of you know me from Radio 4, and I say to those who do not listen to Radio 4, may I say, in the end, you will. <laughs> and uh, I mean, yeah, my audience tends to be about my age, a bit Radio 4 I mean, I get some younger people in sometimes. and But, you know, you have to accept it, your audience ages with you a bit. Yeah, so they'd know me from that. And, you know, I've kind of been around on and off for years, I suppose. 
Did you did you want the Radio Four show when you first got it? The yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, don't you want to be on Radio Four? No, but I'm just I'm just wondering because it was uh, a springboarded thing from the Gary Lineker show. I just I didn't know whether it was an ambition or whether it was just a nice option. Or well, there are certain things that I have an ambition. I, it was my ambition to be on Book of the Week on Radio Four. So when I was, that was really good. Uh, well, obviously, I mean, in a way, it's partly to do with money. You want to be able to make some money out of what you're doing. Mm. Um, not that you get a lot on Radio Four, but it gets you known a bit. So yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And also, I like radio because words really is my metier. I'm not really. Yeah. A physical comic or a, I'm not much of a dancer uh, and let's be honest I'm not the prettiest thing to look at so uh, there's a lot of aliens listening to <laughs> objecting to everything you're saying right now yeah well they'll be here soon no doubt <laughs> yeah that's how we'll end this with the aliens the aliens arriving, just right? arriving yeah, yeah 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 that's a good plan <laughs> um, I mean you, you're you're on social media I'm on Twitter yeah I don't really do Facebook yeah. or Instagram I've got a joke on Instagram it's what we used to call a really efficient drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, I just wonder what your relationship's like with social media because it sounds like you're very specific about what you're on. And yeah, I, I resist looking at it all the time. Let's put it like that. And I, I'm very aware of how many people you see just sitting there gazing at this small metallic rectangle. And I do find it slightly disconcerting. And, and of course, as we know, people get very worked up on it. And I, in a way, I'm always amazed at the existence of it. If I'd said to, you know, someone, you know, if you'd said to me 30 years ago, oh, yeah, soon you'll be able to type a little sentence on a thing and everyone in the world will be able to read it immediately. And you'd think, blimey. I don't think we've quite understood the, the change that it's brought social media I, I don't really but I'm a bit suspicious of it I must say funny enough I, I was I lost my phone at Malaga airport about a week ago and which of course initially was extremely annoying and this you know inconveniencing me but after a couple of days I was quite enjoying the the pesky thing not nagging at me to look at it all the time and I you do wonder about people's attention span and and the way kind of democracy could end up being undermined by it. I mean it is a it's a it's a big thing and that we don't really know fully how it's going to go or what its effects will be no yeah you know, we'll all be artificial intelligence soon anyway you probably are already aren't you I, i'm an alien in a suit waiting mm. for, waiting for you to realize this exactly. is a ruse to hit on you uh, <laughs> um no i i know you i always worry about it i might a lot of writing work i get is writing for people and brands for so their twitter or facebook and stuff so mm. i'm part of the problem in that i need people to look at it so mm. i get <laughs> So I, I know, I mean, I'm, I'm a, you know, you can't help get to my age and be a bit nostalgic for things like, you know, books and newspapers and just sitting in the garden looking at the sky. Mm. These things are sort of disappearing, I suppose. Actually, books aren't there. People still buy them, don't they? Yeah. Few, few and far between, but still do. Uh, not mine, but they do. <laughs> oh, have you got a book? I've got a book, yeah. I've got What's two. that? Uh, two? Two. I've, I've written two how-to guidebooks. Uh, one for the Guardian, and I did a self-published one, and uh, I want to I want to write a comedy one next because, as with all my what projects, were the how tos about? 
the first one was called How to Find a Job Using Twitter. Yeah. And it was uh, How to Find a Job Using Twitter. Uh, because at the time, I was finding most of my work through that. And yeah. I worked for The Guardian for a bit. And they said, oh, would you like to write a book on it? And yeah. I said, well, actually, I've already written one. I just never bothered sending it off to anyone. And then they published it. Oh, and right. it was probably the easiest publishing yeah. thing I've ever like I, I have a friend of mine who's a, a literary agent I've already written it oh yeah here it is yeah, yeah. the literary agent he got made yeah. in about 8 months you already ever get one of them in your life so yes well, I've got one like that yeah where yeah. it just, just all comes together really easily ridiculously so whereas um, you know so often you've got an idea for something and then it goes around <laughs> all sorts of different young men in jackets from Cambridge and <laughs> and then it disappears down a hole yeah it definitely set me up for a, a show so I didn't like they took a lot of control over it and then I and then I self-published a book uh. called How to Make a Living by Working for Free, and it was all. And I interviewed people like Richard Herring and, and yeah. a lot of people who make uh, a lot of free content for the internet, yeah. and then make their money another way by the audience supporting them. Yeah. So it was sort of a how-to guide based on how they've done it. So how much money um, do you make out of this podcast? Then? Uh, not a lot. <laughs> I, make, I, make, <laughs> I make negative about eighty or hundred pounds on every episode, really. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I get I get about thirty pounds donations from it. And then I think that the petrol here probably cost me more. <laughs> I'll give you a so quid if you like. Oh no, it's fine. <laughs> Not asking for money. Um, no, you, you don't. You don't do a podcast. You've never thought about doing. No, I've considered it. Uh, I have considered it, and I. But you've got Radio Four. You don't need. This. Yeah, you I mean, I do crap. Radio Four Extra, <laughs> which in which I interview lots of people all the time. Anyway, which is interesting, and I, do, you know, and frankly, all the arranging of it, I, I'm I'm not good at bureaucracy. But you book your own acts, kind of thing, on it. Well, I, I don't know. That's what you do, isn't it? So yeah. you end up having to be asked friends to come and work for nothing, yeah. effectively. Yeah. Which uh, you know, I can't really be asked. If you did the right subject, I mean, I think. There are specific subjects that might interest me. And I've always quite fancied doing a kind of walking one uh, with a, where you just go walking and also have bits of it that are just walking through a, a wood. Slow, slow radio, as they call it on Radio 4. Do you know um, Tony Law? Yeah. He does something like, Will Wolfie Get It Back or something, where he takes his dog to a wood and he throws a stick yeah. and then he records the video to see if the dog will go and get it. And it's just like 10, 15 second, like things of him just yeah. taking the dog out. Well, Tony Law's a bit of a one-off, you've got to say. Yeah. He's, a, he's a ridiculous creature. Yeah. And very talented. Oh, very ta- Oh yeah, I didn't think you were saying it in a negative way. No, no, no. No, no, totally. I, would, I also wondered if the two intersected, if social media and, and Radio 4 intersected in the same that a lot of people tweet about shows and talk about them and I wondered if you search for your own shows or if you see what people are saying and whether that impacts well uh, yeah I do a little bit but I, I think by and large it's people being pleasant and you know I don't get I'm pleased to say I don't get uh, trolled a great deal which I suppose, which a lot of people especially women do on the internet which is uh, disagreeable hmm. to say the least uh, well, I I read tweets sometimes when I'm doing an interview on Four Extra and if I'm on loose ends or something. And if I'm doing gigs, I suppose I do kind of advertising via mm. Twitter a bit. I mean, I'm never quite sure how, if it's that effective or not. Is it? You probably know more than me, Simon. Uh, well, I, I find that people come to my shows from it. But it's taken me a few years. I mean, like I yeah. said, I mean, I've been doing comedy nearly nine years and yeah. I've done five fringes and only three solo shows so i haven't given them enough content i don't think to to be that committed but people do come down from it and tell me oh i really like your tweets or you know yeah. i really like your podcast or something like that so yeah, yeah. it's a little bit from here and a little bit from there 
yeah. and, and with any luck at all. Yeah, I mean, I quite like Twitter in a way because you can kind of try out a gag in a way on Twitter. But um, I, always, I always find some stuff works written down and some stuff doesn't work written out. Yeah, of course, yeah, oh, we know that, yeah. yeah. And I, sp- I suppose also with your poetry, you can try that out a bit more on Twitter as well, where you can... Yeah, I tend not to put poems on Twitter, but um, perhaps I should. Yeah. I mean, I'm not very efficient at all these, you know, uh, frankly, uh, uh, social media. I don't, I don't, you know, all the apps, and I get pissed off with the phone with its endless apps and snap chats and whatsapps mm. and fucking twats i'm uh, just uh, you asked a question i'll be back by the time uh you finished the end of the question okay uh for the for the benefit of the listener he's going to the door again to have another cigarette uh we i've sort of cut one cigarette out so i'm going to carry on and yeah that's right now i've got the microphone back and i'm smoking me fag out the back okay cool uh i was i mean you're very well known within the comedy industry and on the circuit and obviously you have a a dent within the industry in the sense that you've been on some tv shows you obviously run uh, have, have done your own tv and you've done your own radio do, do you ever consider yourself as famous well i'm uh, yeah i'm slightly famous i'm a you know a tiny bit famous you know people i people say i probably get people stop me you know once every couple of days I'm stopped by someone and they say hello because they've recognised me, but that, which I find a, quite an agreeable degree of fame because, I mean, I really feel sorry for people who are so famous they can't really walk out the front door. I mean, it must be awful without people kind of traipsing after them and I've never really sought that. Do you, do you ever get envious of friends of yours who are sort of... Well, I, I've resisted that over the years because, it, it, as we know... Bitter comedians. There's uh, quite a quite a lot of them out there. Yeah. People who feel that they weren't given the proper chance, or their series got cancelled, or why is that bastard earning all that money in those big shows and he's not as good as me, or you know. And there's a lot of that, and I, I've felt twinges of that over the years, but I've managed to resist it. You know what the hell? Yeah. Had their day. I mean, I'm not going to go. I mean, like every, a lot of people hate Michael McIntyre, don't they? But it's essentially because they're jealous of him. I, uh, it's the thing uh, with McIntyre in particular. I think he's just an easy target now. Yeah, I, d- I don't, I don't hate him. It's not, it's not. Uh, I, I do, I do. I understand why he does so well. If that makes sense. Yeah. However, I don't. I think if he had a different agent, I don't think he would necessarily be fronting as many shows, and he wouldn't be as prevalent. Oh, there's no doubt that who your agent is in comedy is actually it's quite distressing. You know, like you'll have a sort of chat show where the chat show host is from Avalon, and lo and behold, all the guests are from Avalon as well. Or you know, and you think, well, that's not right, really. But I suppose you know. So but I remember when those big agencies started coming up because initially there weren't any because there was no money in it. Mm. I remember when I first came across PR people. I'd never really heard of PR. I thought it was like, I'm in PR. I meant you had some kind of illness. <laughs> and I was always initially a bit... So your job is to just make up lies, whatever you think, really, about something. But, you know, you have to accept these things. And uh, actually, I, you know, I have a PR person. Funny enough, I've got a, a PR person said to me in Edinburgh this year... Uh, an excellent line it was Buzz Aldrin touch my ass." 
which I think, great show title. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I think it actually occurred to me it'd be an interesting thing. I, I'm sure, especially PR women must have many hundreds of stories of uh, you know male males being disagreeable to say the least. Mm. And Buzz Aldrin touched my ass. is a good title, though. Of course, you'd end up probably getting sued. Yeah by Buzz Aldrin as if you keep this in you will now do mm. because probably he didn't touch her ass alright let's just say that or mm. I don't know but he probably did you know <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting involved at all no. <laughs> I'm just I wish I'd started on this business no right? no I'm just, I'm just you're saying you're the one who's getting sued not me I'm just saying well I'll bleep it out I'll be like beep beep yeah, <laughs> it, right. it touched my ass <laughs> yeah, that's that'll right. be fine yeah yeah, um, yeah I, I, I wondered whether you you, what your what your perception of that is, and also uh, you because you, you like you're in the cult show Red Dwarf. Or actually, sorry, oh, I've yeah. just I've just spoken to Doug about this, and he hates it being called a cult show. Like he's not a fan. Like he thinks it's oh, uh, Doug, Doug Naylor. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's he he. We had a whole discussion about whether it was a cult show because he said it did good enough numbers that it should be a hit, but because of the way that the sort of I wouldn't say Trekkies, but the the dwarfers of the track yeah that sort yeah, of thing they, because of that element of it people think it's a cult kind show and so i imagine you you being specifically on shows like that have helped you have this sort of culty mystique around you and yeah well there's no doubt that uh yeah that i mean i don't know how you define a cult show but there's no doubt that there are lots of people who are quite obsessed with Red Dwarf in a mm. way that other shows people liked but maybe didn't get quite so kind of caught up in it mm. all uh, which is a tribute to what an original show it was mm. but yes there's no doubt I, I quite often come across a dwarfy who knows about my episode where because I it was the backwards episode and mm. I was playing a part where all my words were going to be run backwards so I said to Rob and Doug the writers well it doesn't really matter what I say do I does it so because you know when it goes out you won't be able to understand it so I came on and said you know I did a bit of swearing and said this is bloody stupid I bet some twats run this backwards now <laughs> listening to what I'm really saying and of course they have yeah. over the years and so yeah and oh no I quite like being a little uh, tiny part of the Red Dwarf story <laughs> funny enough I auditioned for that I was asked at one point they were auditioning me to play uh, the part that um, you know Crichton a Robert uh, Robert Llewellyn yeah yeah and uh, well no I wasn't asked to, but he got the job yeah. rather than me and probably rightly so and I'm not sure if I wouldn't have wanted it anyway because poor old Robert used to have to spend like he has to get in four hours early for all the prosthetics. Mm. Well, I, I spoke to Phil Jupiter, and I remember he yeah. sa he said to me that uh, he wouldn't have done Nevermind the Buzzcocks if he'd known how often they were going to get repeated now, because he says that people think I'm on the telly all the time, and I'm not. I'm, I wish it, you know, he's like, I wish I was getting more telly work, <laughs> but this because they've yeah. got ninety episodes or something, and they just put them on Dave all the time, and yeah. so people sort of think I'm only doing like the same five. Yeah, jokes. well, in the old days, you used to get repeat fees. Yeah, in fact, Red Dwarf, I think I still get like two pound thirty occasionally. <laughs> And in fact, I'll tell you what I got the other day. I was most, I got, I, I don't even remember doing it, but I think I must have written a joke for Hale and Pace, right. which you may not even remember, Simon, but. I know of it, yeah. Yeah, but. Not that and I got <laughs> And I got paid through the sale of it or something to Australia, 6p. I got, <laughs> I got a check for 6p. It's not worth the money it's printed on. <laughs> through ITV or whatever it was. Wow. So uh, yeah, but that, they don't. You don't get repeat fees anymore. It's buyouts. They say. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
because I suppose there's so much media and so many channels, mm. you know, they couldn't afford to do it. No, how how did you you were talking about we were talking about agents a minute ago? How how did you find your agent? What was the process for discovering uh, the one that worked for you? That's a good question. I well, uh, it was someone I kind of met up in Edinburgh who was starting an agency, the first one, and then yeah, I I mean I was offered to go with uh, up the creek and uh, probably Avalon if I wanted. But I always preferred an agent. You know, I've I've got you know, a very respectful agent. I think they've got Graham Norton and whatnot. But I never really ask him to do much. I'm thinking I probably should a bit more. I like him to just sort of negotiate a fee and uh, be nice to me and get their accountants to do it all. Mm. No, I, I and I've never had an offshore account or anything. <laughs> I've got these really decent, honest accountants. You've just got shoeboxes of money under. Oh your yeah, head. I've got hundred thousand pounds under my bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a gun. Um, yeah, yeah. No. Oh yeah, the conspiracy. Oh no, the aliens. That's why. Because how much longer have we got on this one? Because I've got a, a strange sort of atmosphere out there. Anyway, but let's carry on for a bit. Uh, as though there might be, I don't know, stuff in the sky. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, I always, I always find it interesting how people meet their agents or how they, how they come to pick the agent they end up with. Because obviously, like you said, it's such an important part of your career, and it's such a uh, an integral driving force to help you achieve. Well, I think when people start, they get anyone who's prepared to be their agent. Yeah, and then I, and I think that's how I started. But then Enjoy. one of the people uh, with the agency I got to know quite well, and she started her own agency, and then I went to that and blah blah. Mm. But I'm afraid I have no interesting stories on agents. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> um, well, it's just, I, I went to your website and you have five, so I figured there's got to be some story there. Where well, it's I, a bit of a joke, yeah, because I've got a literary agent, uh, a voiceover agent, mm. and a kind of performer's agent, and then there's at least one other that seems to book me for gigs, and then I used to have a news agent, but they've closed down and turned into the co-op, right. and I had a travel <laughs> agent. Uh, you know, I just wanted as many agents as possible. Mm. Detergent. No, I'm trying to think of more agent words. No, leave it. Secret agent. Secret, Secret agent. agent. Obviously. obviously, they cut the aliens when they come in. Um, I. You, you said you, you're quite. It's quite agreeable for you on social media and online and stuff. But I assume you get a a, a modicum of hate at certain points because yeah. everyone kind of does. How do you deal with like sort of trolls and hecklers and hate online? Uh, I ignore them mainly. <laughs> There's a block button. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you start getting involved in arguments online, I see people do it all the time, and you think, oh, don't bother. It's just, you're just both going to get worked up into a lather. But I'm glad to say, I mean, I've never had sort of death threats or anything like that. No. And it's... Or, you know, I mean, most... Yeah, sometimes I've had people say, you're useless about that. But, you know, fair enough. You know what they say about... It's like reviews. You know, a bad review should ruin your breakfast, but not your lunch. Mm. I try and take that line. Although, when I was younger, I used to get very annoyed by bad reviews. Yeah, I, I can see... I suppose you think it means more than it does. And in hindsight now, you know, it means... Less. Yeah, it's just one person's opinion. There was one year in Edinburgh where I got review the woman who reviewed me. I ended up sleeping with that night, so I was very interested to Wait, see. She, and then she, I got a really good review. I was going to say, did she review yeah. the sex or the amazing? <laughs> I know. Well, that's what I wondered. Well, I thought, well, I obviously it was all right because I got a very favourable review. 
Did she mention it in the review or <laughs> no, was she I professional think, about it? Yeah, no, it was a fairly straightforward review. Unlike <laughs> the one I unlike the one that, that I wrote for Malcolm Hardy, which was for his show. I thought you were gonna say you slept with Malcolm Hardy. <laughs> yeah, well I probably did, but everyone did. But I, I uh, you know, but Malcolm famously managed to find out how to post a review himself and so he got me to review his show as a five star, the greatest thing I've ever seen, you know. <laughs> that was a good gag. How do you how do you gauge success then within a show? Like, let's, let's take this most recent show. What was the target for it? Obviously, monetary comes into it with Edinburgh. But I'm yeah, I wanted to get good crowds, and I did. I suppose you want to get good reviews, and mostly I did. But really, it's, it's my own... You know, you get the audience, the rea- reaction of the audience. And, you know, it, I felt... It, it felt like it had a kind of beating heart, the show. And if a show's got that, then you're all right because I'd done one a couple of years before that called Mindlessness a Beginner's Guide which was a sort of parody of um, kind of all the mindfulness and you know stuff Uh, but you know I knew after I'd done it it was all right and there were some good bits but I kind of knew it hadn't really landed and I think it's something you sense from doing the show a lot and seeing the audience and yeah and obviously some shows like the evening with Gary Lineker one bang from the word go that was the only one I've ever come across that just never had any problems it it started it went really well on the first preview all the actors remembered their lines it got great reviews it went into the west end you know it, it was like one of the, it's the only show I've ever had that seemed to require no parenting you know mm. it was just <laughs> it just did its own thing mostly though yeah and it's a long show you, know, you have to do a lot of rewrites and you know have you hit this right I mean it's a it's a great process and in a way and it's therapeutic it can be I did a version of Hamlet in Edinburgh in the mid 90s and it was partly because I was very depressed at the time and I was interested in Hamlet as this the first ever depressive character on the stage and and actually doing the show there's no doubt made me feel better about the sort of misery I was in you know and I think that's one of the great things about comedy about doing comedy you know there's not many feelings better than after you've just come off stage and done really well and mm. feel pleased with yourself and the audience liked it it's a wonderful feeling oh completely yeah, yeah. it's it's I've, I've got a theory that everyone has one amazing gig in their first five and then is always yeah. chasing that that's <laughs> yeah yeah that's quite quite surprisingly quite often it's the very first one yeah. I remember a couple of comedians who like did brilliantly first go and mm. then like they died on their ass three yeah. later or something yeah, but yeah. if you've never died on your ass you're not a comedian are you no I I always find that really interesting because I, I talk to people and some and like you see them on Facebook or whatever and they always are like oh I smashed it again tonight and you're like you can't every you can't be smashing every game. It's <laughs> no. just a, it's just an impulse unless you're literally doing it to the same. Well, then that wouldn't work either. I just no. I, I think you need a level of self awareness to do this job. That, I agree. That means you know when it went badly and why, and like you can work out why. Yeah, well, you can't always. Sometimes you just sort of you know I can think well not often, but you know there's some lines I've got that will always get a laugh, and then suddenly one day they won't, even mm. though you've delivered it the same or you know. You never really know. Every every audience is slightly its own creature. Mm. 
I mean, you, you're, you're, as you said, words are your thing, and like you, you start, you, you do a lot of poetry, for example, in comedy, yeah. and and I wondered whether, because obviously, like I said, I've just done one for Jupiter, who was a poet as well yeah, before he started, yeah. and obviously he still does poetry yeah. at a certain level as well. Do you think poetry can be funny, or do you think there's just an element of it that it's in the, the sort of timing of it and the cadence? And I mean, poetry can be funny, obviously, you know, especially if you're hitting big rhymes and but I don't think it needs to be and the poetry I do I do a couple of funny ones but I do when I'm on stage when I'm doing a one man show I'll probably do three or four poems that are not even aimed to be funny but I think that certainly with my audience you know, I'm there delivering words which are mostly aiming for laughs but actually you, you know so the people are interested in the words I'm saying and it's strange how it seems to fit quite well. People really quite like it when I do five minutes uh, with no laughs, but there's a you know a couple of good puns. Not always by me, you know. I I do a, you know I do five or six poems by other authors, and yeah, like when I did Hamlet in a way, that was, there was a kind of humour in that too. I like poetry, and I find that if you recite it well, and it's a good poem, audiences do. The sort of audiences that have come to to be made laugh will also enjoy a poem. I suppose you attract like like attracts like. So whatever you do is going to attract a certain element of people that want to do that. Yeah, I suppose that. if you're a flat, you know, if you're doing a show about how you're a flat earther, you're going to get a lot of people in the audience who are flat earthers. I suppose. I had that with Buddhism and cats. I had a lot of Buddhists come down. Oh, yeah. Especially in Are the you a Buddhist? Movies. I read it more than anything else. I yeah. Wouldn't. No, but I, I, I always think of all yeah. the religions, that seems to be one if I were to be religious. Yeah, same. Yeah. But it's not, I don't really identify with it because I don't do enough with it. I, I like reading about it and I learn a lot more yeah. from it than I do than any others. But, but, but I had a lot of Buddhists come to the early shows and sort of, uh, I wouldn't say fact check, but sort of say, oh, that's not right or that's a bit wrong. And I'd go, yeah, I've done that because it's funny if I'm getting it or I'm meant to be funny if I'm getting yeah. it wrong I'm misunderstanding the thing have but you ever done it did you ever do it in front of only Buddhists in Brighton one time most of the room were Buddhists yeah <laughs> like they did like an outing I think and did they enjoy it yeah yeah it was really because by that point because Brighton's like yeah, but Buddhism doesn't exclude laughter does it no not at all if anything they're probably the ones that yeah. are more likely to laugh. I mean, I've um, always been interested by the fact that laughter and religion never really seem to go together very well. There's no gags in the Bible to speak, or there's one pun that I understand. But well, there's uh, do you know Ravi Holy? Uh, he, he's, no. he's a, a legit. He is a priest in real life, yeah. and he does stand-up comedy and uh, has been incorporating more of his stand-up set into his sermons and things. So uh, right. I suppose he's he's doing his bit there, moving moving it across. Yeah, well, good on him, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, if it's going to be a good religion, there should be a bit of laughter in it. Because totally. laughter is the one true metaphysical consolation. Yeah. As Anthea Turner said. <laughs> and I'm just, uh, it sounds like you, you've been merging these genres for most of your career. Yeah. And, and like for art, I did a whole art thing in Edinburgh yeah. uh, for a couple of years. In fact, if you look behind you, you can see one of my works. The, uh, there's a series anyway I won't bother to book this. you can describe it if you want later but uh, but yeah so yeah and yeah I, I like to you know try something a bit different so that was an interesting idea doing a whole art exhibition because I was intrigued by the idea that you never really hear laughter in an art gallery mm. and you know laughter and 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 arts often seem not to go together. But I kind of hung out a bit with some of the Brit arts type guys in the 80s and 90s. 
and I recognised they all really admired comedians. And I always think they were secretly slightly frustrated comedians a lot of the because if you look at a lot of the art it's kind of funny in a way some of it mm. I mean you know the Tracy I mean bed for example it's kind of a, an amusing idea as much as anything mm. but really I'm a Dardarist well I, I think comedy the beauty of it is it can be anything as long as it's entertaining slash funny yeah because I think I think obviously we all are going for laughs ideally but I think there's a certain element of some element of uh, there's a certain element of storytelling in it that is entertaining rather than funny, and yeah. it helps build the world that means the jokes work better because you're giving it context. Yeah. So I suppose if someone comes to see you and they hear you do a few poems, they get an idea of who you are a bit more. Yeah. So they sort of get into your head a bit more, and so when they yeah. you tell the joke, they go, "Oh, I see where's world." Yeah, and in some way that you know comedians should share a bit of themselves rather than just stand there and recite one-liners in a way. I, you know, I think you, I prefer it if you get a sense of who the person is. How much are you you on stage then, and how much are you? Quite on? a lot, really. Yeah. Yeah, I'm. I was a more declamatory on stage, obviously. Uh, but I am it, it, these days. I'm pretty much me. I think I'm not that. I'm similar off to on, probably. Although I'm a bit kind of quieter off, obviously. I mean, it's such a strange thing when you think about it. Laughter and stand-up comedy. I'm being paid to stand in front of lots of people and make them make this funny sound that they do involuntarily, like farting or belching. But you never go to a club to get someone to make you belch, do you? Well, you probably there's one somewhere, but it's there's, probably a weird king thing there. Money, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a farting, a Lepetto man. You must have heard of him, and and there is Mr. Methane. There's the farting. Oh, I know act. Mr. Methane. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I read recently there is the world. Farting contest in somewhere in Sweden or somewhere every year. Oh, wow. No, it's I didn't know that. Entertaining farting. I mean, is it all <laughs> farting entertaining? I mean, like. Well, it is sadly, really, isn't it? I mean, what is funny, you know, if Donald Trump did a big fart while he was proclaiming some bullshit, it would be the funniest thing in the world, wouldn't it? Really? It, yeah. It and would... It's sad to say, you know, you could construct eloquent phrases mellifluous turns of language but really a big fart is always liable to beat it yeah so if you so if you make a joke on stage do you you're, you're it's you're standing by everything you say on stage essentially because a lot of comedians go with the defense of oh i was on stage or it was oh it's a joke i suppose everything and especially as you write so specifically because your words are so well i mean for example i do a joke sometimes when i do me radio four thing and i say uh, you know that jenny murray who presents woman's out it's not like you think radio four she sells crystal meth around the back of broadcasting house right which is a joke obviously so I don't stand by that in mm. the sense that I'm not really saying Jenny Murray does that. And, you know, <laughs> there's always going to be some element of your comedy that's exaggeration. Well, you know, it's so ridiculous that it's... You know, I think Albert Camus said, uh, the realisation that life is absurd should not be an end, but a beginning. Mm. And that's sort of my mantra on the world at large. Now, look, I can hear something strange outside. Alien? Could be. Could be. Hang on, what's that thing there? That's your own art, mate. That's your eyes. No, but it seems to be moving. And look, hang on. Jesus. Um, sorry, 
Look, we're, I think we're going to have to finish, Simon. Yeah, quite like the look of this, eh? You know? <laughs> where, where are you going? All <laughs> oh, right. Well, look, I'm sorry, Simon. I'm, I'm heading off for the alien. Do you want to come? Or? Oh, I would, actually. But have they got a friend? Oh, there's six of them, look. Oh, that's, I'll have five. Yeah. You, you can, can have the one free. you like. Yeah, look. And they've got that funny little machine out there. Right. Okay, uh, before we go, uh, the Asking Industry podcast is a fruit that got in gravity's way production for the internet. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and donate if you can. All of those things help. Also, if you want to tweet Arthur or myself to thank us, we might not be in the universe at this point, but if you'd like to tweet either myself or Arthur to thank us for doing this interview, our links will be in the show notes. Thank you very much for all your help. Come on in. Let's, uh, let's leave the pocket. This might be your last ever one. Uh, ending on a high. Yeah, well, who knows? Off to outer space. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Arthur Smith. You're meant to say, all right. (laughs) Thank you, Arthur Smith. Thank you, aliens. Bye-bye.